The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 141, a psalm of David. Lord, I cry out to you. Make haste to me. Give ear to my voice when I cry out to you. Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not incline my heart to any evil thing to practice wicked works with men who work iniquity. And do not let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it. For still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. Their judges are overthrown by the sides of the cliff, and they hear my words, for they are sweet. Our bones are scattered at the mouth of the grave as one plows and breaks up the earth. But my eyes are upon you, O God the Lord. In you I take refuge. Do not leave my soul destitute. Keep me from the snares they have laid for me and from the traps of the workers of iniquity. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I escape safely. Great stuff from David there. And let's see here. We are in Numbers 22, verses 1 through 21 today. This is the beginning of a series of sermons on the uh, diviner, the soothsayer named Balaam. And I finished the sermons. I'm up to chapter 26 now, I believe, is where I uh, typed last Monday. But um, I will tell you that you'll get good information from this sermon, even if you don't get what is being pictured, because I have not figured it out, and I'm not going to make something up in the process. I've got a friend up in uh, Virginia who is working with me, and we're, we're thinking things through, but I have not come to any resolution where I can say, this is what this is actually picturing in redemptive history. But you'll get great information from all of the sermons, I'll try to make them enjoyable, but at the same time, I'm just, I'm not going to make up something just simply to satisfy your ears. It's not going to happen. So we're in Numbers 22, verses 1 through 21. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us, as an ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak the son of Zippor was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look! A people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. Then he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you, as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? 
So Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me, for I will certainly honor you greatly, and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come, curse this people for me. Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. I am Mesha, son of Chemosh Gad, king of Moab, the Dibonite. My father reigned over Moab 30 years, and I have reigned after my father. And I have built this sanctuary for Chemosh in Karcha, a sanctuary of salvation, for he saved me from all aggressors and made me look upon all mine enemies with contempt. Omri was king of Israel and oppressed Moab during many days, and Chemosh was angry with his aggressions. His son succeeded him, and he also said, I will oppress Moab in my days. He said, Let us go, and I will see my desire upon him and his house. And Israel said, I shall destroy it forever. Now Omri took the land of Madeba and occupied it in his day and in the days of his son, 40 years. And Kamosh had mercy on it in my time. And I built Baal Meon and made therein the ditch. And I built Kiriathaim. And the men of Gad dwelled in the country of Ataroth from ancient times. And the king of Israel fortified Ataroth. I assaulted the wall and captured it, then killed all the warriors of the city for the well-pleasing of Kemosh and Moab. And I removed from it all the spoil and offered it before Kemosh in Kiriath. And I placed therein the men of Saran and the men of Mohrat. And Kemosh said to me, Go, take Nebo against Israel. And I went in the night, and I fought against it from the break of day till noon. And I took it, and I killed in all 7,000 men. But I did not kill the women and the maidens, for I devoted them to Ashtar Kemosh. And I took from it the vessels of Jehovah and offered them before Kemosh. And the king of Israel fortified Jahaz and occupied it when he made war against me. And Kemosh drove him out before me. And I took from Moab 200 men in all and placed them in Jahaz and took it to annex it to Debom. I built Karcha, the wall of the forest and the wall of the hill. I have built its gates and I have built its towers. I have built the palace of the king and I made the prisons for the criminals within the wall. And there were no wells in the interior of the wall in Karcha. And I said to all the people, Make you every man a well in his house. And I dug the ditch for Karcha with the chosen men of Israel. I built a roar, and I made the road across the Arnon. 
I took Beth Bamot, for it was destroyed. I built Bezer, for it was cut down by the armed men of Debon. For all Debon was now loyal, and I reigned from Bikron, which I added to my land. And I built Beth Gamul, and Beth Diblataim, and Beth Baalmeon, and I placed there the poor of the people of the land. And as to Horonaim, the men of Edom dwelt therein on the descent from old. And Chemosh said to me, Go down, make war against Horonaim, and take it. And I assaulted it, and I took it, for Chemosh restored it in my days. That is the text of what is known as the Mesha Stele. It is an inscription by Mesha, king of Moab, who is mentioned actually in 2 Kings 3 verse 4. I'll tell you about this. It's a giant stone that they found out in the desert, and it had all of what I just read you written on it. And the people that found it were so excited. They were, they were amazed because it actually mentions Jehovah, the God of Israel, and it mentions many places in the Bible, okay? But the Arabs saw that they were so amazed with this thing, they thought it must be filled with gold. They didn't realize that it was worth archaeological value, and they put it in the fire, and they broke the thing in half. Yeah, and so from there, the guy had to put it back together, and they did their best at translating it. It was not completely destroyed. You can still see it to this day, but this is the Mishastili. The account he writes substantiates several names and places listed in the Bible. And it also shows us something that the Bible reveals concerning the gods of the nations. Here he speaks of his god, Chemosh, and he speaks of Israel's god, Jehovah. Nations generally had their own god or gods, and at times one nation would take the gods of another nation as their own. This even happened, unfortunately, in Israel, where in 2 Chronicles 25, verse 14, Amaziah defeated the Edomites, captured their gods, set them up, and bowed down to worship them. He was not the brightest bulb in town. The point of this is that just because someone claims the Lord is their God, it does not mean that it is true. Balaam is a soothsayer, and so for him to call on one God or another was what he did. If he could profit off of Jehovah, that was as good as profiting off of any other God of any other nation. Our text verse comes from Deuteronomy 23, it is verse 5. Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. As you have seen, Balaam had to be summoned twice before he actually went. Moses says that the Lord wouldn't listen to Balaam. It is apparent from the verses today that Balaam either didn't listen or he didn't heed the Lord's word either. His first visit showed that he was obedient, but only partially so. This resulted in a second visit with a better offer. The Lord passively hardened his heart in this. The second visit, where he was allowed to go, left him overjoyed at the prospects which lay ahead. However, by the end of his time with the king, he will lose his fee reward altogether. He will become reckless, and he will bring about his own destruction. This won't be evident for quite a while, but I'm apprising you now so that you will have a better idea of why Balaam is so looked down on from this point and forward, even to the book of Revelation. He is a curious figure, and we will be following him for quite some while. The story of Balaam and what he says and does are a marvelous part of God's superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first of two thoughts today is, who are these men with you? 
verses 1 through 14. Verse 1, then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab. The last recorded details of Israel's march toward Canaan brought them into battle with Sihon and Og, where they took possession of the lands of both kings. Now it says that the children of Israel moved on from there, camping in the plains of Moab. Here is a new word in scripture, arava, translated as plains, because here it is in the plural. It is a step or a desert plain. It comes from the verb arav, meaning to become evening or grow dark. In this, it signifies a wilderness area. The word is often prefixed by an article, ha-arava, and thus it speaks of a specific desert often named in the Bible called the arava. In Psalm 68, verse 4, the word is used when referring to the Lord and where he rides, and so some translations say clouds or heavens, which is how the New King James Version translates it in Psalm 68. Sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the arava, the clouds. Actually, it would be in the plural, so it's probably aravot. Anyway, by his name, Yah, and rejoice before him. Here in Numbers, it is simply referring to the wilderness in Moab. Verse 1 continues, on the side of the Jordan, across from Jericho. Where they are now is right at the doorstep of Canaan. As it says, me'eber le'yardan yerecho, or on the side of Jordan, Jericho. The Jordan is the dividing line. When they cross over that, they will be in Canaan, the land of promise. The name Jordan signifies descender. It is given this name because it goes from the high mountains all the way down to the Dead Sea. However, when the Jordan is used in typology, it signifies the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the descender who came from the heights of heaven and descended even to the pit of death in order to redeem man. You can see the symbolism. Mount Hermon going all the way down to the Dead Sea. He is the descender. As Israel is on one side of the Jordan, it signifies that they are on one side of Christ's advent. It is anticipatory of them crossing over and into what is promised by going through Christ. This is the typology to remember as we advance towards the book of Joshua when that actually occurs. Where they are at is at the Jordan across from Jericho. Jericho is introduced into scripture right now. It will become common in the Old Testament from this point on, and it will also be referred to in the New Testament, Synoptic Gospels, and the book of Hebrews. The name Jericho is based on one of two roots, Yeriach, or moon, or Ruach, meaning smell. The first would indicate city of the moon, or the other would be place of fragrance. In fact, the similarity in the roots probably means that there is an understood duality in the name where both meanings equally apply. The exact travel to where they are and the spread of their encampment is recorded in Numbers chapter 33 with these words. They departed from the mountains of the Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. They camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshimot as far as the Abel Acacia Grove in the plains of Moab. Thus, they are on the east of the Jordan in the plains of Moab. But this is the land that was taken in battle from Moab and which was then took from the hand of those who took it from Moab. Verse 2, Now Balak the son of Zippor saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Here Balak the son of Zippor is introduced. The name Balak comes from the verb Balak, which signifies waste. In this, the name means something like devastator, empty, or wasting. Zippor comes from the word tzippor, a little bird. 
it is the same root as the name of Moses' wife, Zipporah. It may be then that this person, though being in Moab, is a Midianite, bearing a name similar to other Midianites who are named after birds and animals. He saw what Israel did to the Amorites, and he is fearful of encountering them himself. Therefore, verse 3, and Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. Here the word gur is used to describe the people. It means to sojourn or dwell among others. In this, you get the sense of people huddling together in fear because of the multitudes of Israel. This is then expanded on with verse 3 going on, and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Here the word kutz or dread is used. It is the same word used to describe how the Egyptians felt at the expansion of Israel right at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Here's what it said in Exodus 1. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread, kutz, of the children of Israel. The translation, because of the children of Israel, gets the meaning across, but it lacks the substance of the Hebrew. The word is mipene, from the face. And so it more literally reads, and Moab was sick with dread from the face, meaning the presence of the children of Israel. It is as if the collective whole, made up of a great multitude, is staring at them in the face, and they shrink back, cowering together in fear. In what is an interesting parallel, the first time Mipene was used in the Bible was in Genesis 3, verse 8, where it said this, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves, mipene, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. There, Adam and Eve, who were from father, having been created by God, hid in fear from the presence of the Lord. Now Moab, or from father, shrinks back in fear from the presence of Israel. Verse 4, so Moab said to the elders of Midian, this is a possible indication that Balak is not a hereditary king of Moab, but is rather a king such as Herod was over Judah. Herod was an Idumean, and Balak appears to be a Midianite. Midian means place of judgment. Midian was descended from Abraham through his wife Keturah. And so they are actually more closely related to Israel than the Moabites are because the Moabites come from Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. The term elders is a word which indicates being old. It comes from a word meaning a beard. So you can tell I must be an old guy. And so it is someone who is known for his beard and thus an elder. If the same people, these men are called the five kings of Midian in Numbers chapter 31. And if so, bad news for them. But we'll get there in a few more weeks. Verse 4 continues, Now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. The word used, kahal, speaks of Israel not as a group of individuals, but as an organized whole. It is an assembly rather than a congregation. It is one mass of people who are now likened to an immense ox which consumes so much that nothing is left when he is finished. Here is a new word, lachak, or lick. It is used twice here, and it will be seen just four more times in the Bible. Verse 4 continues, and Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. As the Moabites came to the elders of Midian, it would appear that they are under the kingship of Midian, with Balak as the head. It could be the other way around, but this is the more likely scenario, at least to Charlie Garrett. Whichever way, he now takes action. Verse 5, then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor, at Pethor. The name Bil'am, it's a bit hard to pin down, 
but it may mean destroyer of the people or confuser of the people or swallowing up the people. Regardless, in each, there is something negative which occurs with the people. There is a connection of this name directly to the Nicolaitans who are found in Revelation chapter 2 with these words. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you have also those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Talking about having a stumbling block and eating things sacrificed to idols. We had our brother Usama speaking here just a while ago about churches now that are on Friday a mosque, on Saturday a Jewish synagogue, and on Sunday a regular church. And then what do they do when the Muslims finish their holy month? They celebrate iftar together. And that's basically what Jesus is speaking about there, eating things sacrificed to idol, acknowledging another religion by participating with them in their sacrifices. Nicolaitan comes from two words signifying victory, as in conquering and people. Thus, destroyer of the people seems to be the intent of both. One is Hebrew and one is Greek. This is seen in Revelation elsewhere, such as Abaddon, which is Hebrew, and Apollyon, which is Greek. They mean the same thing. And Satan, or Satan, and the devil, one is Hebrew and one is Greek. These Nicolaitans are equated to Balaam because they tried to trip Christians up by committing sexual immorality, just as Balaam did to Israel coming up in Numbers chapter 31. However, Balaam is also equated by both Peter and Jude as one who followed after prophet. And that's what we see in these Balaam sermons right now. In the book of 2 Peter, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. And then from the book of Jude, verse 11, woe to them. For they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Balaam here is called to be a destroyer of the people through a curse that will fail. Later, he will be used in an attempt to destroy the people through interbreeding and sexual immorality. The name fits the character. His father's name, Beor, comes from Baar, a burning. And so it means something like burning as in a lamp. Bethor means interpreter, as one who interprets dreams or visions. The name seems to indicate that his father was also a diviner, and the place where they dwell is known for divination. Verse 5 going on, which is near the river. The river is the Euphrates. Here and in other places, it is simply called Hanahar, or the river, due to its eminency. That this is speaking of the Euphrates is confirmed by Deuteronomy 23, verse 4. However, the next clause may also confirm this. Verse 5 continues, In the land of the sons of his people. Here it says, Eretz bene Amo, land sons of his people. However, a good number of Hebrew and other manuscripts all say Eretz bene Amon, or land sons of Ammon. That would be in accord with Deuteronomy 23. Either way, the river means the Euphrates. Verse 5 continues to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Here is a phrase seen only three times in the whole Bible. 
It does not say the face of the earth. Rather, it says the eye of the earth. It was first used in Exodus 10, verse 5, when speaking of the locusts, which covered everything. Now, it will be used twice in this chapter in regards to Israel. Israel is so numerous that it would be as if the eye of the land would be darkened by them, just as the eye of the earth in Egypt was completely covered by the locusts. All the white is swallowed up by the masses. The fact that the same term is used, and that he says these people have come out of Egypt, even though that was 40 years earlier, is not to be missed. A direct connection between Israel being redeemed from Egypt and Israel being led to a land of promises being made. The eye of the earth had been covered to bring forth Israel, and now Israel, who had been brought forth, covers the eye of the earth. The same people, and with the same God who established them, is now at his own doorstep. If God is on their side, to him, there's only one possible remedy to their plight, and he now seeks it. Verse 6, therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Although the king of Moab believes that a curse upon the people by Balaam would be a satisfactory weapon against Israel, he apparently doesn't believe that such a curse was powerful enough to work unless he was right there with them. Today, we might get an email from a person in Australia who wants to pray. And so what do we do? We pray. Location means nothing when speaking to the omnipresent God. But Balak doesn't understand or he does not accept this premise. And so he summons someone he believes can effectively curse Israel in order to diminish their power, which far exceeded his own. Verse 6 going on, perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. In cursing Israel, he would be limiting their power. As each nation had its own gods, apparently he believes that the curse of Balaam was sufficient to weaken the God of Israel. So confident is he in this that he acknowledges it as an almost omnipotent ability. Verse 6 continues, For I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. The reputation of Balaam preceded him, and he was renowned for his ability. This is a close comparison to another man in the New Testament who was given the same high regard. Here's what it says in Acts chapter 8. But there was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. Misplaced trust in the ability of man, regardless as to who he is, inevitably turns out to be a disaster for the one who is at first so confident. Such is the case with Balak now, but onward he goes. Verse 7, so the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand, and they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. Here it specifically says that the elders of both Moab and Midian were members of the summoning party. The two groups are united in purpose and intent against Israel. With them, they bring kesamim, or divinations. The word kesem, or divination, is introduced here. In stating it in the plural, kesamim, it signifies payment for divination. With this diviner's fee presented, they repeat the words of the king, expecting that Balaam would come along without any further delay. However, verse 8, and he said to them, Lodge here tonight. And I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. 
The narrative is rather confusing to the reader, and it has been so all along. If Balaam were a true prophet, one would think that he would have known Israel to be the chosen people of the Lord and to send the emissaries away immediately. But he says specifically that he would relay to them whatever the Lord, meaning Jehovah, spoke to him. Thus, he has a knowledge of the God of Israel. But this doesn't mean it was any more than a knowledge of name knowledge. In Exodus 18, verse 1, it says this, And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro had a name knowledge and wanted to increase it to an understanding of who Jehovah was and what he was in relation to Israel. The same is true with Rahab the harlot. Here's what it says about her. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the man, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord, meaning Jehovah, dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. It is obvious that the name of Israel's God went before them, and it had gone as far as Mesopotamia, where Balaam dwelt as well. What appears to be the case is that Balaam sought out whatever God of whatever land he was asked to seek out. Jehovah is the God of Israel, and therefore, to the God of Israel, meaning Jehovah, he will make his petition. In this case, he seeks out Jehovah, not because he knew him, but because he knew of him. In the night, that begins to change. Verse 9, Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? Here it says, Ve'yabol Elohim el Bil'am, And came God to Balaam. When he comes, it is with a question. It doesn't mean God is curious. Rather, it is a common way that God introduces himself when attempting to elicit a cognitive process in the one he is speaking to. He asked, what are you doing here, Elijah? When he wanted Elijah to consider his own spiritual state. He asked King Hezekiah through Isaiah the prophet a series of questions concerning his actions towards the Babylonians. This was to get Hezekiah to consider what he had done in his prideful display before them. And the same is true here. It very well may be that Balaam didn't expect any answer from him, but it was a pretense to get them to think that he was actually able to communicate with the other world of the gods. It is even possible that he could have grifted them for a higher fee, claiming this was a special case. Whatever the reality of the situation, the Lord is not inattentive to it. However, in not knowing how Jehovah deals with men, meaning at times in the form of an interrogative, Balaam now assumes that Jehovah is not omniscient. Rather, he needs to be informed concerning the matter. It is a way of hardening Balaam's heart without him even realizing it. Yes, Jehovah is a God, but he doesn't know everything. I have to explain to him the details. However, in this question by God, Balaam should have immediately realized that the God of Israel was not limited to where Israel was. Rather, he was with Israel, and yet he could extend himself beyond their location in knowledge of events which concerned them. Emissaries are there, and they are there because of his people, Israel. Due to the questions of Elohim, Balaam realizes that Elohim requires a proper answer, which he then provides. Verse 10, so Balaam said to God, Elohim, or God, is mentioned six times in this chapter. 
This is the only time the word is prefixed by an article. It says, Ve'yomer Belam el ha Elohim, and said Balaam to the God. It is a clear indication that the God to whom Balaam spoke is the true God, whether Balaam realizes this or not. This does not make Balaam a true prophet of God. It simply means that he is a diviner who has now had an encounter with the true God. God revealed himself to Pharaoh in a dream, didn't he? He did so to Nebuchadnezzar as well. Both were for the benefit of the people of the Lord, not because they were prophets. The same is true here. If he had demonic encounters and past divination, he could readily assume that those were also gods, along with the God he is now speaking to. Regardless as to how he views Jehovah, he answers, verse 10 continues, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me to you, saying. There is an abruptness in the Hebrew. The word saying is not in the original. It seems to show that Balaam is caught off guard by being questioned as he is, as if it was actually unexpected. Verse 11, look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Balaam is specific with his words. He says, the people have come out of Egypt. The article specifically identifies them. He knows that Jehovah is their God. And so he is directing his words with that in mind. He then repeats that they cover the eye of the earth. The connection to the locust plague of Egypt and the immense size of Israel as an assembly is repeated back to the Lord. The earth is darkened with them. Because of this, Balak had said, verse 11 continues, Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. Here is a new word not seen before in scripture, kavav. It will be seen eight times and they are all in the account of Balaam being asked to curse Israel from Numbers 22 to 24. It comes from a root meaning to scoop out. Thus, it means to malign someone, stabbing them with words. In essence, the words would scoop out their power and allow them to become overpowered. In this, Israel would be driven out. Verse 12, and God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. God now explains rather clearly that there is no point in Balaam going. And so he tells them he is not to go. Balak had said to him, he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. But God tells him that they are, in fact, already blessed. His maligning them would mean nothing. But after receiving this information, guess what he does? He fails to convey it to the emissaries. Verse 13, so Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. The words here show that Balaam is a cunning operator who is looking to actually profit off of this deal. That's why Peter and Jude both ascribe him as being one that seeks after profit. He knows Israel is blessed, and he knows that his words would be ineffectual against them. He has been told as much, but he never conveys this to his guests. Instead, he says that Jehovah has simply not given him permission to go with them. This leaves open the door that he would have gone with them if he had permission. In his words with the Lord, he never asked what he should do or any other relevant question. Thus, he was not seeking the Lord's counsel at all. And to tell them what the Lord had said would have ended the matter right then and there. Instead, his words don't just leave open the door for Balak to return with a greater reward. Rather, it assures it. Verse 14, And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. The words God spoke to Balaam were his words. 
Balaam's words to the emissaries included the directive of the Lord, but not the substance of his words. Now, the word of the Lord is completely missing. It is man's word alone which Balak receives, and it has nothing in common with what was conveyed by Jehovah. Because of this, the expected result follows. Please curse this people with a curse. Bring them to ruin with the words you speak. Bring them down to a lowly state or even worse. Take away their power and make them weak. They are too powerful for me and I need relief. Curse them so that over them I can prevail. Curse them and bring them to sorrow and grief. Bring them low, no longer the head, but only the tail. I will reward you for your effort. Curse them now. In your words, I will gain the victory. Curse them and with woe, please them endow. Curse them for they are too powerful for me. Our second thought today is rise and go with them. Verses 15 through 21. Verse 15, then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. Balak understands that Balaam wasn't actually unwilling to come, but that in order to do so, he would need to be enticed more than the first time. If not, he would have simply given up on the matter. In sending greater dignitaries, it means greater honor and prestige for Balaam. It is what any head of state would do in such an instant. The word honorable here is kaved. It signifies that which is weighty or heavy. Thus, they are heavy with honor and abounding in dignity. Verse 16, And they came to Balaam and said to him, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. The recorded words are more formal than before. They specifically state the full name of their king, indicating that they are under his authority and are speaking his exact words. And the words of Balak are firm in their intent. It is a royal invitation, but it is also a royal appeal, and it comes with a royal promise. Verse 17, for I will certainly honor you greatly. Again, the word kaved is used. Kaved kaved ha meod, honoring you, I will honor you greatly. The superlative nature of the words indicates that the weighty nature of the emissaries will be outmatched by the dignities he is to be extended by the king. Verse 17 continues, and I will do whatever you say to me. It is a word like that spoken by King Ahasuerus to Esther or of that of King Herod to Herodias' daughter when they promised them up to half their kingdom. What Balaam desired, he would receive. Verse 17 going on, therefore, please come, curse this people for me. It is the second time that he has used the word kabav, meaning to malign Israel with words. But Balak now reintroduces his supposed piety before the Lord and dismisses the promised honors as if they were nothing to him. Verse 18, then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or to do more. Balaam reveals where his heart is with these words. He translates the idea of honor into silver and gold. And he fails to say that he has already been told that cursing Israel would be pointless. And then he says, Yehovah Elohai, Yehovah my God. Yehovah is Israel's God. And so he is, in effect, aligning himself with Israel. Now that he has done this, and because his curse would be ineffective anyway, he can trust that he will indeed receive a great reward from Balak, and neither he nor Israel will be harmed but he will be immensely more wealthy when his calling is complete. If this were not correct, he would have simply ended the talk with what was said to him the first time. But instead, he anticipates either no response from the Lord or a favorable one. Now that the Lord is his God, 
how could he be turned down? And so he says, verse 19, now therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. The fact that he asked them to stay the night again indicates that he really wanted to go with them. If not, he would have simply repeated what he already knew and he would have then excused them for their journey home. But instead, he anticipates that the Lord will have something new to speak out. This is evident with the words, Ma Yosef, or what more? Verse 20, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. The word if here should be since. They have come to call, and so the Lord will send him on the journey to Moab. But he warns him that what he is instructed to speak, only that he is to speak. There is no contradiction in now allowing Balaam to go. The prohibition was on cursing Israel, to which not going with the first emissaries was attached. Now, in fact, it is clear that Jehovah wanted all along for Balaam to go and to bless Israel, turning what man had designed as man's curse into what the Lord purposed as his blessing. It is not correct that Blom's curse would become a curse upon Israel, but it is true that the Lord's blessing through Blom would be a blessing upon them. This was the Lord's intent, regardless of the attitude of Blom. His path is a reckless one, but the Lord's is one which is set, and it is predetermined, as we now see. Verse 21 finishes with these words. So Blom rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. It is interesting that this is stated, and then in verse 22, which we'll get to next week, we'll see that Balaam is with two of his servants, but then much of the account after that is as if he is all alone in the world with just him and his donkey. This donkey will be seen 14 times in this chapter, but not again in either chapter 23 or 24. Though it is an anxious place for us to stop, in the middle of a chapter and just before the coming of one of the Bible's memorable passages, it is good that we stop now. It will, one, instill in us a need to come back next week to continue on, and it will, two, teach us patience as we wait. Until then, we shall close with the thought that the Lord's word is set, and we are to live by it. We are to pass it on as we receive it, and we are not to add to it or subtract from it. The reason this is important is because it tells us of our state before God and the only way to correct that state. We have a defect in us, and that defect is sin. Christ Jesus came to correct that, and he did just that. But we must act upon what he did by believing the message and applying it to our lives. We'll close with that thought and be back here next week, the Lord willing, to continue on with the story of Balaam. But before I actually finish up and give you our closing verse, I want to remind you, in case somebody has clicked onto this video today, watching streaming live, or if they ever watch it on YouTube, that that defect I just mentioned, sin, is not something that you can correct. It is in you. It is in you forever. It will never leave you. No matter what you do, no matter what good deeds you do, no matter how many old ladies you walk across the street or how many puppies you pet, it does not make any difference to God. The infection is there and you are unholy because of it. You can't go back in time and undo it. Time travel is just a thing we see in the movies. It doesn't happen in reality. And so we have this sin in our lives, and the Bible says that your sins have separated you from your God. Without having that sin removed, which you cannot do, you will be separated from God for all eternity. And so God 
gave us the cure. He sent his son into the stream of time to live the life that you and I cannot live. He lived under the law of Moses. The law given to Israel is their standard. The man who does these things will live by them. And none of them live by them. But Christ came and he was capable of doing so. One, because he was born without sin. And two, because he is the God-man. He is able to fulfill the law of Moses. And that's what the gospel records show us, is that he, in fact, did. And then he gave his life up as a sacrifice of atonement, which is allowed under the law of Moses. One thing dies in the place of another in order to take away the sin of man. In the old covenant, they used an animal. And the animal, it says in the new covenant, could not take away those sins. It was only a picture of what Christ would do. We can go back and redo the book of Leviticus someday if you want to. Wonderful stuff there telling you all about what Jesus would come and do, pictured by these types and shadows. And he came and he gave that life up and he offers you salvation. The removal of your sin because of what he did. Nothing you do, only what he did. And all he asks you to do is one thing. It begins with B and ends with E, leave. Yeah, that's right, believe. If you can simply believe that God sent his son to the cross of Calvary to pay your sin debt, that he went into the grave and was buried and rose again on the third day, the Bible says you will be saved. It has to be something that you take into your heart and you believe. But if you do that, you will be saved. The sin is removed. And then from there, 2 Corinthians 5.19 says that God is no longer imputing our sins to us. It's the Teflon life that you live in Jesus Christ. You do something wrong and God does not impute it to you. Thank God for Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. So if you've never called on him, please do it today. I was talking with Brother Usama just before we got started today, or just as we were getting uh, started with the sermon today. Then he said he was driving down from Missouri yesterday, 19 hours, right? Uh-huh. 19 hours, and when they got by Tampa, there was a giant wreck, and he says some of the cars were so destroyed, there certainly nobody lived in some of them. They, it just, how could it be? And they, don't, they didn't know they were going to die, and my response to him was, just this morning, I read about a judge. I think it was on Drudge or somewhere, but anyway, I was reading an article, and the, the judge was sitting as a judge, and he said, the last words he said, I think I need help here, John, who must be the bailiff, I don't know. And he died right there in the judge seat, 57 years old, a couple years older than me, and he's gone. We don't know our last day. The Lord does. He knows when we're going to be gone, but we don't. I tell you that now is the time of God's favor. Today is the day of salvation. Call on Christ and be saved. Believe and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our closing verse comes from Genesis 27. It's verse 29. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master over your brethren and let your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be those who bless you. That is Jacob's blessing upon his son, Judah. Next week is Numbers 22, 22 through 41. It didn't come by divination through moans or creaks. Rather, it came through an animal. It's entitled, The Donkey Speaks. That'll be our 44th number sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? I got, before we get into our poem, I got a question for you. Maybe somebody's going to earn a Maserati today. 
we spoke, and there's a couple answers. It's not just one place in the Bible. You can give one of a couple, and I only wrote down two. If you come up with a different one, you'll get your car. We spoke today of someone uh, having a knowledge of name of the Lord without actually knowing the Lord. They have a knowledge of the name of the Lord, but not actually knowing him. Can anyone think of an example of this from the book of Acts? If you get it before I read it, you get your Maserati. If not, don't worry. The soothsayer girl. The soothsayer girl. You get a go. You get a Maserati there. That's one of them. If you can, uh, if you can guess the next one, uh, the second one before I get to it, I will allow you to have the Maserati for two weeks without asking the question. Let's see here. It's Acts sixteen verse seventeen. This girl followed Paul and cried out, saying, "These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way." Of salvation. She didn't know who he was, but she had a name knowledge of him. Okay? And the other one is in Acts chapter 19. It is verse 13. This is only two. There are others, but I just picked two. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. That's right. They had no idea who he was, but they were using a name knowledge of this uh, particular God-man. So there you go. Good job. You get a Maserati for a week, and next week everybody gets questioned again. We got to fit in that thing. Yeah, you, you don't fit, but that's okay. I've got an irony of the week coming up on a prophecy update, maybe, which I'll tell you and the, the other people can hear about it. A girl was busted a day ago driving her, her child's little, those little cars you get in. She was driving on it. She was drunk. So you could probably fit on this, so you can try it. Anyway, um, now you know that one. So if I do read that as an irony, you can laugh anyway. Um, curse this people for me. <laughs> then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab. It was there on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho is where. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, that was his ancestral rights, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many, as the record does tell. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, Now this company will lick up everything around us, so says this rhyme. As an ox licks up the grass of the field, and Balak the son of Zippor was king of Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, so we see to call him, saying, Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. The situation is just the worst. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the diviner's fee in their hand. And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak, as we now understand. And he said to them, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you, as the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam, so they did do. Then God came to Balaam and said, Who are these men with you? So Balaam said to God, as requested to do, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people has come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Thus he was, relaying Come now, curse them for me. I trust your clout. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. And God said to Balaam, you shall not go with them. So he to Balaam addressed, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. 
So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, as he was instructed to do, go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Then the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. That end is dead. Then Balak again sent princes more numerous and more honorable than they. And they came to Balaam and to him said, Thus says Balak the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. Hurry to me instead, for I will certainly honor you greatly and I will do whatever you say to me. Therefore, please come curse this people for me. I'm desperately in need of you. Can't you see? Then Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more than just as I have been told. Now, therefore, please, you also stay here tonight. Won't you hear my plea that I may know what more the Lord will say to me? And God came to Balaam at night and said to him words sure and true. If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning on this journey. He took a stab, saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess, and so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply, and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the redemption which is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you that he has saved us, not because we deserve it, but because of your great mercy and your love for the work of your hands. And Lord, we would pray that many would come to a saving knowledge of Christ Jesus and that they would be willing to, once coming to that knowledge, share it with others. Lord, without us opening our mouths and speaking, it's going nowhere. So please help us to open our mouths to speak and to tell of the glory which Jesus Christ has done in this world. And Lord God, we thank you for our brother Usama who's come today and given us a word from his knowledge. And we ask that you continue to bless him, protect him, and prosper him as he pursues you and as he tells the truth about what is going on in this darkened world. And may you come soon and take your people out of here so that we can be relieved of what is coming upon this earth. And if you choose to leave us a bit longer, well, we'll be content with that as long as you give us enough strength to praise you. And so may we do that. And we praise you and we glorify you and we exalt you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen.